Hello and welcome to Movie Go Round, a film discussion podcast that rotates between different themes every single week on a five-week schedule. This week's theme is New to Two. Hello, everybody. I'm Brett Stewart. Joining me on this lovely evening, David Luzader. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm just concerned that I am going to be the guy that brings the kind of weird movies that nobody really knows how they feel about <laughs> to new to two. This is following. I can't remember what your last new to was. Was it Burn After Reading? Uh, well, there's Burn After Reading and Ingrid Goes West. We're both new to two movies. Oh. I yeah, this, this is true to the pattern. Yep, this is it sticking certainly right is. And of course, new to two is the opportunity for me and Nicole. Also joining us, Nicole Davis, who have not seen the film before. Nicole, how are you? I'm good. I'm good. I mean, I, I'm I'm good. I'm kind of with it, mostly with it. How many hours <laughs> of sleep are you supposed to get a night? Because I'm not getting that. Oh, no. Well, this week, Nicole and I had not seen the film. David had the opportunity to choose it. But before we get into this week's film, I want to talk about next week's movie. Next week is Netflix Roulette. We spin the wheel and let the Netflix gods decide what we are going to watch. And we are going to be watching a Netflix original, I Don't Feel at Home in This World Anymore. It came out in 2017, stars Elijah Wood. So that should be fun to check out. It's not too often we get Netflix originals on that. So I kind of like when they populate into there because that's the perfect kind of thing to get for Netflix Roulette. So, of course, if you want to follow along with us, that's a perfect week to do it because you probably already pay for Netflix. We all do. We're all part of that machine. But this week's movie, also on Netflix, though it didn't work for me, grumble, grumble, is The Informant. It came out in 2009. And The Informant is how I should probably say it because it has an exclamation point at the end of it. Mm-hmm. A rising star in the agricultural industry suddenly turns whistleblower in hopes of gaining a lucrative promotion and becoming a hero of the common people. And he inadvertently reveals his penchant for helping himself to the corporate coffers and ultimately threatening to derail the very real investigation that he helped to launch. Now, David, why did you pick this movie for nudity? Well, part of it is I have a hard time finding a lot of movies that you guys haven't seen. Uh, so there's lots of movies I would love to do, but just do not qualify. And I really enjoy Steven Soderbergh as a director. Um, I don't know many Soderbergh films that I've seen that you guys haven't seen. This is one of them. And I thought it would be an interesting opportunity to sort of discuss him as well. And also a movie that I think provides a lot of discussion. It's quality aside. I think there's a lot to talk about with this movie. Yeah, absolutely. And bringing what our second Soderbergh film to the table, correct? Because he did, did. He yeah, did out, of um, out of sight. Oh, that's correct. Yes. Yeah. Now, man, this guy's got a eclectic <laughs> filmography, to say the least. To um, say the least. I was going through it and I was like, that's a Soderbergh film. That's it. Like, I, I didn't even know half the movies were Soderbergh films. Um, and he's also incredibly prolific. There's like at least one movie a year. Oh, yeah. For this the most guy part. Is, this guy's working. He is working. And this movie, man, it was fascinating. I, I want to dig straight into our discussion topics because we have so many good ones. And I think the first one from Nicole here, 
that this movie kind of plays like a cross between Wes Anderson and the Cullen brothers. I think that plays into some of the weirdness that, you know, David mentioned at the, the top of the program here. It is a bizarre movie. I, I told you, Nicole, in our chat that I, to me, it feels more like Wes Anderson writing to me than it does directing. I think, I, I think I would agree with that because I think the, character of Mark Whitaker as portrayed in this film is a little bit detached from reality and mm. has these thoughts in the ways that I feel like uh, characters in Wes Anderson movies talk. Yeah. No, I think that's definitely true that there are these little um, little asides. You get to hear what he's thinking during certain scenes and it tells you things about his character particularly, you know, because his attention tends to wander when important things are going on and all of a sudden he'll be he'll be thinking, you know, this would be a great place for from for some outlet stores. People right. come from all over southern Illinois. He's looking yeah, at a so man's funny. tie talking all about how the good types of ties never go on sale. Yeah, I, I and I, I really actually kind of like that cuz he's like normally if he, if he showed us that normal dialogue it would be really boring and dry. And instead we get just the bizarre thoughts of this character and it does like get us more into the head but also cements this more as a weird comp drama dramedy sort of thing right and we all do that right like it just most movies don't point it out that sometimes we're zoning out into a different place and this movie does that twofold because in the first half of the movie it's very much like we're going to give you the inner musings of this character uh in order to kind of flesh out how unique he is and how different he is from everything else around him. And then the second half of the movie, they start to use that to flesh out his mental illness a little bit more, especially once we know he's bipolar and almost like, you know, his internal dialogue is running in one direction while he's pulling it back in a different direction. And this becomes incredibly apparent when people start realizing he's lying all over the place. Yeah. That lying. Oh, my God. There's a scene in this movie where he doctors a note from his uh, psychiatrist using an 847 phone number in Illinois, uh, which is everyone, everyone I know has got one of those phone numbers here in Chicago. And uh, that was instituted just a year or a couple months after when he doctored this man's letterhead with what I assume is that man's current phone number. And the the shattering of his reality of getting caught forging this document. But then also like he seems to kind of believe his own lie. Oh yeah. I mean, you have pathological liars have to, you have to believe what you're saying in order for it to be convincing. But I do really like that scene because he gets backed into the corner, finally to the point where he can't anymore. Right. Even his wife's not getting behind him and she's been supporting him all the way. Yeah, supporting him still, in fact, to this day. Uh, yeah. But it's just, yeah, it gets to this this point where it's like, you, there's nowhere for you to go. We have you dead to rights. Like, just give it up. And just like the way that he kind of breaks down, it still kind of has that levity. Mark Whitaker is such an interesting guy. Yeah. Um, as, yeah. you know, the, at least the character of him is like, he still kind of has this levity, even when he's like, ah, well, I should probably go back to the hospital, huh? <laughs> Yeah, it was wild. And it was also crazy because, you know, the man that, that brings this up, which is Special Agent Brian Shepard. And keep in mind, I don't know if we explicitly Played by mentioned Scott it. Scott Bakula. Right, Scott Bakula. This is all 
re- this is all true story. Brian Shepard was the name of the special agent that he worked with. Um, and this is the special agent who had been planting him as a mole and as an informant throughout this drama that we'll get into. Um, but in this conversation, you just feel for Brian Shepard, the FBI agent, because oh, yeah. he has gone through the rounds with with Mark. And even more so, Mark has falsely accused him of attacking him, of telling him to destroy evidence. And he he's the one to finally break it. And he's like, no, you're lying. We know you're lying. Here's what we have to prove you're lying. And it's a really sobering scene. Yeah, and they give him so many opportunities. The FBI agents give him so many opportunities to just stop. So like, many throughout the entire movie. Yeah, like you can just not talk to us anymore. Or if you do talk to us, just talk to us anything that's not about the case. Right. And like literally every, because keep in mind what happens in this movie is, um, you know, he is informing on price fixing and uh, in the life scene. In the lysine industry, right? Uh, you know, for additives to what is it? What what is lysine anyway? Like an a, like a food additive for animals or something like that? Uh, as an amino acid that is used in the biosynthesis of proteins. Okay, according to Wikipedia that I just looked up real quick. <laughs> so so he the whole you know big industry and by big I mean five companies and two of which are focused on in this movie of the lysine industry are fixing their prices and they're all working together to make sure that their bottom lines are as sweet as possible. And yeah. he informs on this for years. He goes years uh, recording hundreds of three, tapes informing three years, yeah. three years informing the FBI of this price fixing. And then when it's almost all said and done, he sits, he sits down with two FBI agents and it's like, hypothetically, what if I embezzled? Uh, yeah. He just digs this grave and goes deeper and deeper and deeper. And it's painful to watch it. Oh, it is even a scene earlier than that when they ask him, who did you tell about the raid? For some reason, when I was watching yeah. it, it was so uncomfortable. It was so uncomfortable to watch. It's so uncomfortable. I love it when he... It is very hard to watch someone who's de- actively denying reality. Right. Yeah. And it, it's bizarre. And he goes on such an interesting character arc because, you know, our synopsis mentions that he thinks he's a hero of the common people. And he certainly has that complex throughout the entirety of this. He never really believes he does anything wrong. And, you know, the people that he works for, the big corporations, they're the ones screwing over even more people and taking even more money. But what's mind-blowing about it is he, like, thinks he's like a secret agent for half this movie because he just gets thrown. And I feel bad for the guy in a way. He just gets thrown into this... FBI investigation that he's not trained or equipped either, you know, mentally or otherwise to really help with very effectively. And it kind of breaks him down. I I did like that the movie um, and apparently this has become true as well. Several people have come out and said this where it's like the FBI put so much pressure on somebody who was not equipped to handle it. And uh, I, I, I just want to kind of maybe point to another uh discussion topic that I think there's the feelings of Mark throughout the, like towards Mark throughout the film. Cause it's constantly shifting. Like your feelings on Mark Whitaker in this movie are just constantly just careening all over the place. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. I would, I would agree with that. You know, at, at, at the very beginning, 
I don't like him just because he's he's it's the mustache, in the middle it? of. Hmm? <laughs> it's the mustache, isn't it? Well, I don't like the mustache, which he gets from his father. <laughs> he's yeah. driving his kid to like like to or from school in a Porsche, and you know they're in East Overshoe, Illinois, um, and it's not a place where a lot of people drive Porsches and you find out that he's also got a Ferrari and he's also got like six other cars. Yeah. They had eight cars. Yeah. And it's just this, he, he's clearly gotten this need in his head to have the, the trappings of wealth and, uh, the showier things in life. Like he always wears these same kind of ties, which I remember from the nineties as being like this fabulously expensive brand of ties and several other executives at the company wear similar ones. They look sort of like these darkish watercolor um, paintings and, you know, so he's wearing the expensive ties and his wife has really nice, you know, and not like flashy nice, but like tastefully really nice jewelry. And he's building stables across the road the from his stables. house. And this excess makes me be like, oh, God, one of these guys. But then he's like, he's earnestly explaining his work to his kid. And he's, you know, this affable guy and matt damon walks this fine line through the whole movie of being a guy who is you know both filled with self-importance and yet clearly desperately insecure Mm -hmm. and he's kind of going back and forth and he's doing his matt damon affable guy thing for most of the movie and that's (laughs) It's very hard to resist. He's super good at doing the affable guy thing. Absolutely. And being likable. But he's doing these things that you just can't like, and it makes you feel kind of complicit in what's going on. I think that's an interesting point. You do, because you, you are following him pretty closely. I, the the orphan thing, I think, is yeah. a really oh, interesting example God. of that, because the movie... You know, he tells this story a couple times in the movie about how his parents died in this car accident and he ended up being adopted by uh, a wealthy man who, you know, was very nice and helped him go to school and did very well for himself. Did very well for himself. Uh, and then later on, you find out it's a lie. And he, then there's a whole segment of him explaining why he does it. And it's like for him, it, it like that that is just a point for him where there's kind of this breaking point as an audience member. It's like, yeah, like he's doing the embezzling and, but he's like insisting the whole time. Like I'm still part of the corporate culture. So he's like, ah, okay. But then like, we've been lied to your parents are alive. You're, you, you told the story because people would like you more. And that's what you've been doing to us this entire movie. As you just, you want us to like you. And that all and- unravels in the last 15 minutes of the movie mm-hmm. <laughs> when, when his yeah, parents but- just get a phone call about how he's been lying about them existing. And one of those, uh, one of his parents was played by Frank Welker. A <laughs> was prolific, a transformer. Prolific oh, wow. voice actor. Oh, Frank Welker has been everything. Oh, really? For all times. Uh, well, he's been the, he's the current voice of Freddie in, um, what, whenever they do Scooby-Doo stuff, uh, he's Scooby-Doo and Fred Jones. Um. Uh, 
Yeah, I mean, if, if you look, if you ever just go look at his stuff, he's, I mean, he does animal voices. He's the voice of Curious George whenever they do Curious <laughs> George stuff. Uh, this guy is in everything. I think he's the voice of Apu from Aladdin, if I remember correctly. Yeah, he, he is one of the busiest voiceover artists in the industry. Yeah, very so. rarely doing a human voice. And it's kind of hilarious that I think the, the only line he's got in this movie is, that's weird. Yeah. Or that's kind of weird. That's kind of weird. <laughs> <laughs> it's like our son's been telling people that we're dead and he's like oh, that's I, love, weird. I kind of there's no follow-up on that they don't call him or right. anything like you just, right. you, or at least the movie doesn't show them calling right. him to talk about it i also love it's, that it's, it's been going on for decades ever since he was oh, in yeah. college yeah well because also the 90s were so different like you you know one's gonna verify that you tell them you're an orphan that's like yeah okay like there's right. not, you know, we don't have, I mean, still, if someone came up to me tomorrow, I was like, Hey, you know, I'm an orphan. My parents died. I'm not going to be like, well, excuse me. I'm going to go on your social media and <laughs> dig it up. But it was, it's a lot easier now to like, you know, maybe see them with somebody online and be like, Hey, wait a minute. Where back then it was like, someone's like, Hey, I'm an orphan. You're like, well, okay. I'm trusting you entirely. The 100% modern day Mark Whitaker would absolutely have a bulky uh, face, Facebook, right? Like a fake stuff. Oh. It would oh, be yeah, an entirely would, yeah. fake life. Yeah. Well, and not, not, nothing in his life is necessarily fake. The 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 uh, the parent thing was to gain sympathy, and that's really skeezy and fake. But it's like you know he didn't have like a secret second family and or anything like that. Uh, he never lied. You know he got his. He was he's a smart man. He has those degrees. You know he worked for him. Yeah, and it's it's you know the nature I. I can only speak for how this movie portrays him. I haven't read any books about him. I've just barely read like a mm-hmm. couple news stories about him. I didn't have a chance to listen to the episode of This American Life that partially profiled him, but he's he doesn't come off as doing it. It it really does seem like compulsive mm. lying. Like he can't help himself. He's not malicious about it. He never sat down and said, "Okay, my career is going to go better if I tell people that I'm an orphan and garner sympathy this way and, you know, try to manipulate people with what I tell them and I'll exaggerate the truth here and there. It's not about, it's not about that. It's not, it's not a, it's not sociopathy. He's not trying to get people to do what he wants to because he's superior to them and he can do it. It's, it's just, he can't, help it he's got this need to feel more liked and more important and this is the the quick fix way of doing it is by lying about certain things Mm -hmm. now in the end of the film when he uh is sentenced to to in the film he's sentenced to nine years in prison in real life it was ten and a half um yeah he served like eight served eight and a half now, right. when he when he served this this sentence, the judge makes a comment that you know his his bipolar disorder didn't have any bearing on his actions. Really, it was just I, I think he says um, what does he say? Uh, everyday greed or something like that, or garden variety garden something variety like greed. That. That's what he says. Yeah, and um, yeah. great line. And the uh, part of me wondered, like, is it greed? And I think part I think part of it is for sure. But I did feel that part of it was just he kept digging himself into holes and just didn't go anywhere but down. And I do feel like 
perhaps some of his inability to rationally think through these issues he was having contributed to what ultimately led to him getting a almost a decade sentence. Right. And I think that's probably the, the mania part of right. being bipolar is just you sort of skim over things that you don't need to think about right that second in order to propel forward in whatever you know track you're on at the moment mm-hmm. um but i'm i was actually kind of wondering if that contributed to like some of these musings that he has while he's doing other things and does does anyone know is this um david do you know are these voiceovers that you hear of his are they things that he actually said or just something that the screenwriter made up uh, i believe there's just things that the that the screenwriter made up ah uh, that's i, I that's haven't I, too bad <laughs> i mean i haven't read the books i haven't listened to any of the interviews or anything like that um so i don't know oh because there's just marvelous one that's sort of points to his own psychology and he's I think it's after he gets off the phone with the FBI after telling them that he's, you know, he doesn't know how how long he can live this, how hard it is to live this double life. And then there's this thing he says where there should be a TV show about a guy who calls home one day and he's he there. talks to himself. He yeah. yeah, he's talking to himself, only he's someone else. He's somehow divided into two and the second one of him drives away and the rest of the show is about him trying to find the guy. And I'm just like, that would be amazing. Right, that would be an interesting <laughs> show. That would be an interesting movie that Steven Soderbergh has already made. <laughs> Wait, was it? Yeah, he's he's naming what? his own movie. What movie? It's is um Schizo something. I have to look up the oh, actual name. Schizopolis. Yeah, Schizopolis. Ah, uh, well, neat. It's yeah. an interesting <laughs> idea. I'll uh, have to go watch that. <laughs> yeah, there. Uh, my favorite one is is he has this whole musing about. Um, like death and, and dying. Oh, uh, yeah, and the tie. Like, yeah, and like, you know, and your last words will be, and then it's Joel McHale, high fructose corn syrup. <laughs> I, just, I don't know why, like, the way they blend that together really works for me yeah. every time I've seen this movie. Yeah, right. Like, everybody's got this trigger phrase where it's the last thing they say before they die. And if you, if you say it, then it's time kind yeah. of thing. Yeah. And I'm just sitting there, and of course, that made me stop and think, I wonder what mine would be. Right. What would I want mine to be? What would it probably be? My, you know, it would probably be like, uh, where's you know, the one in the bathroom? You know, yeah. a pyrrhic <laughs> something horribly mundane. Right. I, my favorite is, um, when he's at the beginning of all of this informing and he, he's sitting in a, in a car with the FBI agent and then gets out and the FBI agent drives away and he just has this quick internal monologue about how, you know, he's yes, such I a nice know. guy. What a good listener. We could be friends. We could, we could fish together. And, uh, it's just right. his innocence at the beginning of all of this. And he's also oh, like, yeah. how would he feel about me calling him Bry? Yeah. I'm going to try Bry yeah. out next time. I'm glad he let yeah, me call he's... me. Let me call him Brian. Yeah. Right, he's instantly deluded that like he and the FBI guys not only could be buddies but are well on their way to being good buddies because yeah. he's thinking to himself, "I'm probably a refreshing change from the kind of right. people he's yeah, dealing with not, every day." I'm, yeah, I'm not a bank robber or anything like that. I'm just a normal guy. Which like, no, you are exactly the kind of guy most <laughs> FBI agents deal with. I mean, not like the insanity, but just like yeah, they deal the with a lot of normal, white collar criminal. That's what like the FBI a lot of the times is going after. 
I feel like Scott Bakula in this movie is, uh, or uh, Brian, uh, huh? No, sorry, I was. T- <laughs> we'll get to it in a second. Okay. So, the, I, I, the hair. Oh yeah. Oh, the hair in this movie. Uh, Brian Shepard. I feel like how he actually is is how Mark Whitaker believes he is. Because Mark Shepard oh, is just totally. like the most decent guy, uh, even though all of them have really terrible haircuts, as Nicole pointed out. Right. Yeah. Brian Brian Shepard, as portrayed by Scott Bakula, has like the most Spock like shiny. Haircut. Yes. The the shiniest, most tidy hair since Mr. Spock. Yeah. It's like perfectly in place all the time and just like this weird, perfectly trimmed shape around the edge. Yeah. Yeah. I really like that this movie is very obviously set in the 90s, but it never does the winking thing of like, it's the 90s. Yeah, they just had Joel McHale walk on set and put on a suit. <laughs> like, um, yeah. Totally. Oh, Joel McHale. I, I love him. Dreamboat. Yeah. <laughs> Dreamboat. Uh, we're going different directions there. Um, so I also wanted to talk about a question Nicole put in our docket. Uh, does aiding the prosecution of a price-fixing case cancel out embezzlement of millions from one's employer or at the very least help a sentence at all? Because the folks that were you know, facilitating this price-fixing scheme ended up getting three years, and he got three times as long. Obviously, yeah, he got they, that because not because of the price-fixing scheme, but because of the embezzlement, but still. Mm-hmm. Also, he had a much crummier lawyer than Archer Daniels Midland had. Right, which yeah, he kind of well, did he, himself, but also, yeah. Right, he originally had Tony Hale. Um, oh, right. yes. I need to rhapsodize about Tony Hale for one second. So the fact Sorry, that yes, he's... Sorry, yes, I'm his original lawyer. <laughs> yeah, his original yes. lawyer, Tony Hale, uh, not playing a man baby, which really throws you, because he's either Buster or Gary Walsh from Veep, which are the same exact character. And there's just no in-between. But it was kind of refreshing to see him talk in full sentences as a professional adult. And he's yeah, great in this movie. I love lawyer. him. Yeah, he yeah. plays a lawyer in this movie. And uh, But yeah, he first of all, he's just screaming common sense into his client. And he will not listen. <laughs> um, no. No, Mark take is the so plea. desperate for attention and the need to feel like the good guy that he can't resist talking to the press and i uh, and i love the the scene when they're about to get in the elevator to go up there and he's like i haven't been fully honest with you guys but i'm gonna clear it up in there uh, <laughs> and they're just like what, what yeah and the lawyers are like wait what no we gotta no. get you out of here what are yeah. you doing and even when tony uh, hill's character gets him a plea which is a very reasonable plea and he would have served half the amount of time that he ended up serving less than half the, less amount, than half time. the amount of time he just couldn't come to grip with the fact that he was wrong that it was worth fighting for him even though he even though he had made it all up which is what's really wild about his illusion because he couldn't see like yeah i did something wrong but i did something better for you so it's like that should that should give me right that should cancel it out um but he ends up having which, absolutely no leverage i mean even the u.s government which right. was previously well, going loses. to back him did not he loses his immunity because of what he did. Um, and e- even though like, so at the end of the movie, they show him um, campaigning for a, a pardon, which is actually something that Mark Whitaker has campaigned for. And several people have campaigned for on his behalf. Yeah. That's uh, still ongoing too. Yeah. You've had like, like his FBI handlers, several prosecutors like have all said like he should get a pardon 
because you know yes what he did was bad but it the, the lysine thing was terrible for the american people and he helped bring that to light yeah, yeah he's the he's the highest ranking whistleblower from a fortune 500 company to ever come forward and work with the fbi you know to the point where like one of the senior fbi guys is going what's in it for this guy <laughs> yeah uh and and james b lieber who wrote a book called rats in the grain uh who is an attorney poses a question in the book where will the government obtain the next mark whitaker after potential whistleblowers observe how whitaker was treated which is an interesting question yeah i mean whistleblowing has also become an entirely different beast politically as a whole um yeah but yeah with mark whitaker I run into an issue that I, I I also I often grapple with in real life, which is, um, you know, he gets almost a decade for a a white collar crime that didn't really hurt anyone directly, and there are people that kill other people that are indicted for manslaughter, that are dealing drugs, that are doing any array of horrible things that get you know, far less time. And I think that this movie really made oh, me sit back and think people. Oh, totally. You could manslaughter. You could get pr- prison for four or five years. Absolutely. Yeah, okay. It depends on intent. Sure. But absolutely. You know, there are violent criminals that get far yes, let's less just put than it, there 10 are years. Violent criminals. Okay. Yes, that, that, okay. Yeah. Cause I'm like murder. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But they're it's kind of a big deal. And and that really throws me with, with this movie and just with society as a whole, because it is shocking to me that a that an idiot like this can serve ten years uh, or all, or close to ten. It just oh, he's far from mind. an idiot. I was gonna he's, say he's not an idiot. He just can't control his compulsions. He no. was, he was like one of the younger yeah, youngest so. people to become a, a president of a division of his company. He was he earned earned he earned his BA and his uh, master's of science simultaneously. And then it got more degrees while in prison. All right. So I'm going to rephrase that and say he is a, um, he is not only is he delusional common sense, but he lacks the common sense and he lacks any societal smarts, right? He just, he is an idiot when it comes to the fact that he's sitting there waving at the FBI camera that is filming his meeting, right? Like he lacks, any sort of common sense. You're absolutely right. Yeah, he he's so interesting. He's almost naive, but he's not naive. You know, he knows what he's doing when it comes to the embezzlement and all that. But the way that he acts about it and like acts, you know, like we were talking about at the end when he waves at the camera, it's like he has this way about him that is like, how do you have this optimism just about life? Yeah. Like, this is a guy that seems like he's always ready to go on a stroll and he's going to talk to you about how beautiful the day is and, like, look at, ah, look, the garden's coming in so nicely. And just, it it just, I feel like if I was around him, I would be like, hey, you know what? Life's okay. (laughs) Should I just stop the episode now and just splice in the latter half of the Polka King? I don't think people will even notice at this point. It's the same discussion. <laughs> well, there is similarities here. Yeah, there there are, but I would say that uh, Mark Whitaker, I think, is more compelling of a figure. Yes, versus, I agree. Uh, and I and I was actually thinking about that. Jan Levan. 
yeah, I was thinking of that movie today while watching this because that movie, as we talked about Poker King, they just felt like we have to cram every single detail of his life. Like, he got stabbed in prison. We need to include that for no reason in the movie. And this movie is much more selective in what it shows you. And I think it is a better, uh, I guess, biopic. Kind I, of I don't really know what you mean. Less. Yeah. I'm sure there's of. some artistic license taken. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I had no idea that it was three years. He cooperated for three, for years, three years with this investigation, getting them hundreds of tapes yeah. and being, you know, like one of the best witnesses and, and informants that the FBI has ever had. Oh, yeah. To the that, point where like someone sits blocking a camera at the meeting and he, he thinks casually about it. finds a way to move him. Yeah. And <laughs> he acted, I mean, he acted completely completely normal in his company for three years never once gave up anything that he that he was an informant or acted strange to be like suspected you know the, the the company didn't know until the whole thing broke they weren't like investigating him because they had suspicions like he was successfully doing this insane operation well apparently his groundskeeper knew well yeah he was telling his <laughs> because he couldn't resist telling yeah. somebody well, other and, than his wife and he told and he told several people who worked at the company. What well, yeah, right before the raid, he right warned them the raid. that the raid was coming. Yeah. And he apparently a secretary had known for months. Right. Yeah. The she so wouldn't bizarre. tell anybody I trust her. And it's yeah. just like eh. <laughs> maybe yeah. he is naive, or at least about you know, about human nature. Yeah, he, lives, he lives in his own world. Yes. We- Definitely. We mentioned briefly that Tony Hale's in this movie, but one of the people that he tells, um, hey, by the way, or no, I guess it's not him. Uh, I just got mixed up, but it reminded me anyway. Uh, like Andy Daly's in this movie, Scott Adsid, uh, Paul F. Tompkins, Patton Oswalt, like all these comedic actors playing non-comedic roles, which... Right was was purposeful by Soderbergh to kind of add this other layer of it. But I think it's actually pretty effective because when I see these people, I'm like, I know them from really funny things. And here they are just playing people. And I think this movie, you know, I put in our docket, it's almost too real to be funny because I know it, it wants, it is, right. Cause it is right. And you followed, you followed up with it's because it is. Yeah. And, uh, and this movie wants you to be able to laugh at, pieces of this but i think the problem for me with considering a comedy is that you know i i put in our docket this movie plays on everyone's incompetence you know it's not just marks it, it's the incompetence of the fbi to um to put him in positions he might not be prepared for it's the incompetence of adm to be uh allowing this to happen inside of their walls like they're literally checking the other people four wires <laughs> in meetings, but not this guy. Well, they, they joke about it. They joke about it. No right. Actually right. It. And it just plays on the fact that all of this is, is alarmingly stupid to me that See, I don't, I don't think ADMs was incompetent. I think it was hubris. You think it was, they were untouchable. I suppose. I mean, you have that, those opening sequences. I'm, I'm blanking on his, his manager's name or his boss's name that, they're, they start fighting over even like how many phone lines do I even have tapped? Uh, <laughs> um, 
Uh, oh yeah, Biff. When Biff. Yes, old uh, Biff. Yeah. Chevron. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And it just kind of blows my mind because everybody in in this is is a smidge incompetent at one point or the or another, and that's what almost makes it too real to be unfunny because like, this did happen and this is totally happening every day in corporate culture. Yeah, I, and it's funny even talking about this movie. I feel like we've talked also a lot about the reality of it as well outside of like the film. Like this really is, despite the fact the fact that it's about setting corn prices, basically, uh, it's got it's full of very interesting things and compelling characters. Yeah, yeah. Brian Shepard makes this quote that sums up the entire movie to me, in which he says, "You know, everyone in this country is a victim of a corporate crime by the time they finish breakfast." And it's alarmingly true because what's in your breakfast? Cornstarch. Oh, eggs. Eggs. Corn syrup, some sort of soy product. Right. Right. So, you know, this happens. Even the egg thing. He talks about like, oh, they feed them this thing and they lay an egg and it's out. You know, it's on the, the whatever within like six weeks instead of eight. Right, right. And this is happening in every industry on every level. And it's mind blowing to me. And I think this movie, this movie kind of reminds me of the big short in a way where it's like, oh my God, how did we let this happen? Uh, because the entirety of the big short, you're thinking, how did we not realize this? This was, this was going to crash. And I felt similarly, to fail, about, baby. too big to fit. Right. And that's how I felt about this movie at times. Uh, some other discussion topics that we have. Uh, is it a universal desire to not just be important, but also feel important? Uh, which, if, if you could only have one, which is better? So he certainly wants both in this movie. Yeah, I mean, he's, he's the president of a major division of his company. And yet that's not that's not enough for him because he feels like he doesn't have the respect of his peers and you know, what's the, the basic respect that's, you know, owed him from somewhere. And so, you know, and the, so he tells these, these lies to make himself feel more important or tells lies to other people to make him feel, you know, seem more important to them. And, and who, what, what does he think is going to happen once the raid happens and he's, they, they, all the informing is done. Oh, he's going to be the one running the company. Which is shockingly is not that far off because he's currently the COO of a giant company that does more or less the same thing. Yeah. And he's been the CEO, COO of that company for a very long time. Literally like um, immediately after getting out of prison. Yeah. He's probably also not blowing the whistle on them. Uh, right. But he thought like, and I love that he has that one with the FBI. Like, well, my position of the company is going to be okay, right? And everybody's like, nobody wants to tell him. Yeah, there's this uncomfortable silence while they all yeah. sort of shuffle their feet. It's like somebody the just corporate culture is definitely going to change. Yeah. The <laughs> <laughs> well, they don't want to scare him off from the investigation. Right, you know, from right. minute one, it's pretty. It's made clear in the movie that um, his primary handler, um, you know, Brian is having pressure put on him from above to get tapes, get evidence, push this right, forward. And they, they need specific words. We agree <laughs> is what yeah. they need from the, uh, the Japanese company. We are agreed. Yeah. Um, yeah. But guys, he's also Which, 0014. 
because he's oh, twice God. as smart. And also, I, th- I thought about that for a second because he, he says he's 0014 because he's twice as smart as 007. It's a smaller number. I'm just throwing that out there. Like, if, well, yeah, it's if you're going by decimals, I suppose. Yes. <laughs> right. Well, yeah, it's not, it's not Agent Point Double O Seven. Agent Point Double O Seven. Uh, yeah, no. Yes, Agent Point Double O Seven would be a higher number than Point Double O One Four. Yeah, he certainly has uh, an incredible amount of hubris at that point in the movie, in like the middle section. Or he literally thinks he's a secret agent. I mean, would would you rather feel important or actually be important? Oh, God. See, God, there's expectations on you when you are important. There's a lot more responsibility there. Right, but if you just feel important, do you, do you worry that people are just feeding into delusion? And you don't want that. If you are important, they don't have to. Would I be okay with that? <laughs> I would say ultimately probably being important. It depends on what the word important, what that means, I guess. But I think being important would probably be better. I think you can get feeling important if you are important, I think. And also, if you get enough Instagram followers, you can definitely feel important. Yeah, at Movie Go Round Pod. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Yeah, what about you, Nicole? We don't have an Instagram. (laughs) Yeah, follow us on Twitter. Well, I mean, it depends on your point of view, I suppose. You know, from a purely personal uh, perspective on things, it, I think it would be better just to feel important because then you would have less insecurity in your life. Um, but actually, being important, you will probably have a greater impact on the world world although yeah important in what way would also be important would would also be something you would want to consider so are you important because you're running a major charity that's helping you know thousands of people or are you important because you're running a giant corporation that's screwing people out of their money or are you important because you're in a in a high position in the mob and people constantly want to kill you and you're constantly having people killed right and the funny thing is he goes on that arc right he goes from wanting to feel important to being important to at the very end of the movie really wanting to feel important please mr president sign my pardon and he never he never considers the cost of being important. Right, right. And and I love in the scene when he is when he's, you know, advocating for his own pardon that he still feels the need to just put in little snippets of complete and utter BS. Like he's like I really just want to go home to my wife and three children, two of which are adopted. And just like he has to throw those little things in there, right? Um well, that's not, that's not BS. No, it's that's- not, but you know he says it to try to appear um, more sympathetic yeah, make, himself, make himself more sympathetic yeah right. this whole thing wants people to like him exactly yeah so, yeah i don't this is a good it's a good question nicole and it is i think i'd rather be important i think i could i think i could get myself <laughs> to feel important if i was important and um but you know someone who i feel like should place more value on their self-importance is his wife ginger who should probably just leave i'm just gonna throw that out there why did she wait almost a decade for this man? His high school sweetheart. They met in eighth grade. Yeah, I don't think the movie gives us enough 
uh, of the relationship to fully like judge it. Because I guess I, I think, yeah, we don't we don't learn much about the wife except that she's really supportive. She's incredibly supportive. But she's supportive, but and, also she but, tries to pull him away from these things. There's multiple times in the movie where she's like, "We can just stop this." Yeah, but at first she's she's the one who pushes him to in to the FBI to, to inform the informer. Yeah, because she says, "If you're not if you're not going to tell them, then I will." Which so I agree with. It, kind of, in the first place. Yeah. I just feel bad Which for poor Ginger. Which is the right Ginger. thing to do. Right, right. But, you know, she's... But she's with him from the beginning to the end. She's still with him, you know? And it's... It, it, supposedly, he has turned his life around in a big way. He converted to Christianity in prison. And he's, you know, he's registered with several speakers bureaus, I found out. And he talks about you know because of his experiences he talks about corporate ethics to you know major at major functions and collects speakers fees for doing so god i, I okay like and the company talk- he works for now you know also like i think they supply stuff for important medical research yeah for the american um, cancer society and stuff among other things i want to get to yeah. the point in my life where i can charge speaker's fees because man <laughs> what a dream oh you can make a good amount of money off of yeah. like an hour of work at most no kidding and, and well, ginger, for the speaking i understand you to put it together the talk but still right. and so, ginger's yeah. still with him today and uh man i just uh, you never know enough about the inside you guys are right like the movie doesn't show us and we don't know enough about the inside of their relationship but I, I'm just. I think "Stand by Your Man" can be a dangerous thing sometimes. Well, oh, sure. Maybe yeah, a very but dangerous but thing. Know, but we don't know if that's what she's doing here, or if they really have worked through their issues. Yeah, you're, we don't know. We don't know. But I do love or that actress. She's gotten though. very used to the wealthy lifestyle. Cause, right. Yeah, because you you never quite feel like he lied to her. No, she knows everything. I mean, clearly yeah. she she would be the one to know that his parents were still alive. Right. And you uh, what, going thinking back on it, he never tells that story in front of her. Yeah, no, that's true. So she's not complicit in the lie that his parents are dead. She's also not complicit in him forging his psychiatrist's note. You know? Yeah, even she is appalled. Yeah, like she's she, incredibly <laughs> appalled. Realizes, which, again, the uh, most tense, awkward scene you'll watch Oh, man. Ooh. Well, and I, and there's a moment there, too, when he stops, he pauses, and it goes through his head as he's trying to think of the next lie uh, before he says it. I thought, oh, I really right, because, like that. Because these, these magazines and these, you know, thought tank uh, trade publications were writing po- profiles on him. And whatever ended up in these BS profiles is what he convinced himself was true, which is all he was giving the reporter the work with. Yeah. Absolutely bonkers um though i will say next next week we will see the same actress again melanie linsky she is in yes uh what's the movie we're watching i don't feel at home in this world anymore um and if people are curious what else i might know her from yes she was recurring on two, two and, and a half, half. men <laughs> she was crazy i remember that she used to like show up yeah. outside charlie sheen's window and it was like the only thing crazier than charlie sheen but she's also super great in Over the Garden Wall, which I suggest everybody watch. Very cool. Oh, well, she was great in her debut in Heavenly Creatures. Oh, also true. Peter Jackson movie. She was also good in and, Togetherness, uh, but that got Kate canceled. Winslet. 
She's a good actress. She's a good actress. She did more work. You should like her. Absolutely. Yes. <laughs> we'll, we'll, re- we'll revisit that next week. The The final discussion topic I just want to briefly mention here as a piece of trivia, and also I think as a, as a testament to Soderbergh's directing, is, uh, you know, Matt Damon commented that one of the most effective pieces of directorial advice he got. Um, I think he called it perfect. Yeah, perfect was when Soderbergh essentially told him to treat the final court hearing when he's getting up and issuing his formal apology to people in and out of the room for how sorry he is as giving an Academy Award acceptance speech, which as soon as I, (laughs) as soon as I knew that that's what he was instructed to do. Yeah, it totally rings true. He gets up and he's like so close to thanking the Academy. Um, The, it's the most inauthentic apology I think I've ever seen. Topanga, Topanga agrees. agrees. <laughs> not to say the Academy Award acceptances uh, are not are not authentic, but you know what I mean. I've been subject to less authentic apologies. Like, <laughs> I'm so sorry that happened. I'm sorry you were offended. Oh yeah, yeah. I'm sorry you're <laughs> upset. Right? That's that's a bad apology. It's yeah. it's not it's not so much yeah it's it's not so much authentic as it is grandstanding. It's like I'd like to take a moment here, <laughs> right? <laughs> to let thank everybody everyone know. for their time and yeah, to let you know that I I feel bad about what I did. Without ever naming right. what he did, <laughs> um, and also yes. like take note of that he never it, he never acknowledges well, he, in any capacity what he did was wrong, nor what he even did. It's almost like he's in denial that he even took no, the money. He he does at the end. He talks about. I mean, he he talks about the five hundred thousand dollars. I mean, the five million dollars. I mean, the eleven point two dollars. I mean, the eleven point two million dollars. <laughs> um, yeah, I love that. I just love that every time it gets brought up, it's more money. <laughs> Right. And they're like, wait, wait, you said this other number before. <laughs> like, does it matter? And he's just like, does it matter? Right. Uh, yes. Yes, it does. Yeah. <laughs> Though, according to the FBI, all the money was accounted for. Wild. Oh, good. Absolutely wild. Well, David, I think we got a very full discussion out of this. Thank you for bringing it to the table. Um, I'll pass over yeah. to Nicole, having seen this for the first time, and then I'll respond as well. Did you enjoy The Informant? Yeah, I I enjoyed the writing of the informant. I mean, this movie almost lost me. You know, very early on in the movie, when he's first, uh, when he first starts cooperating with the FBI, he delivers the words, "This is about price fixing in the lysine industry," and I'm like, "Oh, time <laughs> for a nap. Let's go." Yeah. <laughs> Zero interest in this. But it's, you know, his character becomes more and more compelling. The writing is really great, especially the, his, uh, you know, the voiceover year as he's thinking to himself. Because he has these really kind of fascinating musings. And when he has them is also fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, these these great performances. And he's got these. I'm like, all of a sudden, I'm like, oh, look, there's Biff Tannen from Back to the Future. And there's... You know, there's the Kurgan from Highlander, or uh, also the voice of Mr. Krabs and a million other <laughs> voiceover works. It's it's so weird to see Clancy Brown playing like a normal person. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Even if it's a corporate lawyer, it's it's strange to see him like well put together and well dressed and acting in a normal fashion because that's not his usual shtick. So. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I enjoyed it overall. Um, I would, I would give it a, a light recommend. Yeah, I, I, 
I'm a sucker for Matt Damon, which is why I'm surprised I hadn't seen this before. That affable, uh, everyday, lovable guy that Nicole was referencing earlier. Totally something I love about him. I mean, guys, I watched We Bought a Zoo. I saw <laughs> Promised Land. Promised Land was bad. I saw Downsizing. Oh. I saw all of those movies. Because Brett, are you in love with Matt Damon or do you owe Matt Damon money? <laughs> if I, oh man, the promised land. I'm still angry about that movie. Um, for, the, for those of you who haven't heard of that, just tell me you haven't seen Elysium, please. Oh, I have seen Elysium. I have. I love Elysium. Uh, I like Elysium. Yeah. No, I mean, no, no. Quick detour. The promised land is about John Krasinski trying to convince him fracking is bad. It's, oh, yes, I remember. Oh, okay. It's bad. <laughs> wow. Yeah, it's bad. <laughs> um, but that that aside, I just I love Matt Damon, and I think he's I think he's great in this movie. He makes this movie. I mean, I think he mm, he does 100%. a very good job of tackling a line that, as Nicole mentioned earlier, is a very delicate act. He, you almost like feel bad for him, but then are disgusted by him and you land somewhere in between. And I think that's hard to pull off as an actor. And I think it was written superbly well to reflect that for him. So yeah, if you, if you have Matt Damon fever, I, I, I recommend, <laughs> uh, or if you just like Steven Soderbergh, because he's such an interesting director. And I think this is another little interesting entry into his filmography. Great. I'm glad, I mean, I'm glad to hear you guys didn't hate it. Oh, I, no, I, I, haven't, I haven't seen this movie since college. I went actually in a, I had a break between classes that was just long enough for me to go watch this movie. Uh, and I hadn't watched it again until today. And I, I, I didn't really, you know, I didn't have a ton of thoughts about it, but watching it again today, I was like, Oh, I remember actually, I really enjoyed this movie. So on the next new to two, we watch, we bought a zoo. No, just kidding. I can't do that to no. myself again. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that movie. Scarlett Johansson. Why? Okay. Uh, you can find us online. Question. You can find us online at Twitter, Movie Go Round Pod, and on Facebook, Facebook.com slash Movie Go Round Podcast. Let's go around the table. David, where can people find you online? Uh, you can find me on the Brokebot Mountain Podcast with Phil Rudin. You can find me on the internet under the username Davluz. That is D-A-V-L-U-Z. So Twitter and Instagram, you can find me there. And Nicole, what about you? I take care of our Facebook page at facebook.com slash movie go round podcast. I have a letterbox that I desperately need to update. Uh, Nicole underscore Davis. And I tweet sometimes and that's uh, at your word whiz. Y O U R W O R D W H I Z. Very good. You can find me on Twitter at I am Brett Stewart. That's Brett with two T's and Stewart S T E W A R T. You can email the show. We have a brand new email. We want you to email us. We've made it easier. It was a long email before. Now it's shorter. It's hi, H-I, at mgrpodcast.com. You have no more excuses. Email us. We want to hear from you. Did you watch this movie? Do you have any thoughts on our conversation? Are there movies that you'd like us to check out in the future? Movies that need to be added into the beginning running for you did this to us. Let us know. And we can go ahead and take care of that stuff. And we want to engage with you guys on there as well as social media. But I'll do it myself, David and Nicole. We are going to be back next week with I Don't Feel at Home in This World Anymore, a Netflix roulette pick. We'll see you then. We'll see you then.